Welcome to the very first Divine Renovation Podcast. My name is Dan O'Rourke. I'm with uh, John Paul II Media Institute, JP2 Media. And along with me today, I have Father James Mallon, the uh, pastor at St. Benedict Parish and the author of the Divine Renovation book. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Dan. And alongside Father James is uh, a good friend of mine and the director of pastoral ministries at St. Benedict Parish, Mr. Ronald Huntley. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Ron. So we... Uh, the podcast that we're on, this, this, why are we here? Father James, why are we here today? Um, to drink coffee and <laughs> hang out and have a good time. Yeah, who scheduled this for the morning? Because <laughs> I can well, tell you, if it was a 9 p.m. podcast instead of a 9 a.m. podcast, we wouldn't be drinking coffee. Well, as you say, there's a, there was a book that was published um, in August this past year, and uh, it's a book that really had been rolling around in my heart and in my mind for a couple of years, and it's a book that, that looks at the question of, of what does it mean to be the church? What are we called mm. to do? And especially, how do we translate the call to new evangelization that's been coming from the leadership of our church into the context of a parish? Because oftentimes the, the renewal, the, because you can't keep the Holy Spirit down, the Lord is always mm. desiring new life for the church, but the renewal that often is within the Catholic Church is happening through movements, uh, organizations outside of the parish. And one of the things is that I've always struggled with throughout my most of my adult life, and especially in, in my role as a, as, as a parish priest, is how do we bring those essential elements, those life-giving experiences of church that we find in all the renewal movements, and find a model to bring them into the parish? Because oftentimes, you know, when Catholics come alive in their faith, you know, when they have that encounter with Jesus, when they come into relationship with Him, become His disciple, then it's like, well, I guess i got to just... I've got to leave the parish and join some 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 uh, some movement or some ministry outside of the parish. I'll go to the parish for sacraments. Yes, but for the real, you know, for like uh, fellowship and discipleship and all these things, people often have to leave the parish. And I've always struggled with that and said, we've got to find a way to to make it happen in the parish. And so, that's really the the beginning of the book is was uh, looking at a a theology of this and doing kind of a theological analysis, but then also maybe telling some of the stories of my attempts over the years to, to find the models that work uh, in, in the parish context. And and basically, it's the story of how I so learned from bit, all my mistakes, all the mistakes, all the dumb things <laughs> I was going to say, I you're did. being a bit modest. I mean, the, the reality is you wrote this book, and it's it's done exceptionally well. It's, it's You've got a message that people are, are reacting to. And so divine renovation, sort of that, that whole concept of, of sort of rebirth and um, regeneration, uh, it's led to all sorts of opportunities and to, frankly, your phone ringing off the hook. And there's not enough Father James to go around. There's not enough divine renovation book to go around. You can only read the book so many times. Some of us have read it more than once. Uh, others are, are, are slowly plotting our way through it and waiting for the audio version, but <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, we can work towards. Um, but what, what's so wonderful about it is it sets the context for conversation. Yes. And I think what we've got now is an opportunity to have some of those conversations. And I think that's what we want to do with these podcasts, because uh, over the last number of years, I've had an opportunity to often to, to meet with priests and to talk with different groups of priests. And and priests, priests and people in leadership in the church are, are struggling with this because the passion is there and they don't want it to, to die. Mm. And, and yet it's painful because it's like we're stuck in a gravitational field of you know within within church life that to, that pulls you in towards the status quo and says don't change don't change don't change anything 
and and there's a lot that needs to be changed in in how we live the church. It's not about changing our theology. We don't need to. We've got a great theology. We need to change how we do it. And and so I think that the hope of this podcast is for those who are interested uh, that they may find inspiration as we have a free exchange of ideas and explore some of the themes of the book, and and even drill down into nuts and bolts about. What what advice uh, would you give? I mean, I mean, Ron, you're you, one of one of Ron's gifts is is he's he's just amazing to come alongside our, our key staff and ministry leaders, and to um, and, and to help with those very questions. You know, how how do you do this? And 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 he can give great advice. So I think we've got a great team here. It's going to be great fun. And look, it's not just sort of in Father James's book, but it's kind of happening in reality. Isn't that the case, Ron? It is. And the other piece of that too, Dan, is we're struggling with these things too. Mm. Because the thing with any ideal or vision is it oftentimes looks really good on paper, but then it's implementing change at a pace that people can can receive yes. and come along with. And, and that's a, there's always a tension there. And I'm aware of that because we love people so much. And some people don't want to change. That's very normal. We all are, we're all aware of that. And yet there's a willingness and a desire to reach the next generation. And so there's always that tension of familiarity and the knowledge of needing to be relevant. And so I try to help manage that. Don't always do a great job and make a lot of mistakes. But hopefully through these podcasts, we'll be able to share some of those. And hopefully they'll be relatable to a lot of people. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So what we want to talk about today is uh, sort of one of the concepts that's in the book. I don't know if it's too overt, but it's, it's in there. It's, it's that concept of drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so when, you, when you hear the word drive, what does it evoke for you, Father? Well, I, I think specifically the word drive it almost hits me in a kind of a negative way almost. Like it's, really? it's almost something that can be unhealthy. It's, you know, it can burn people out and all this. And that's my immediate sense of it. But I think I like to go back to a kind of a more of a sense of passion, you know, like because uh, passion for, for, for what can be or for what, of what could be with, uh, within the church. You know, Ron, you talked about uh, people not wanting to change, um, and part of the the task of leadership in the church is to motivate people to change. Because let's be honest, uh, in North America, we, we need to change. We need uh, to change. <laughs> I mean, we we've inherited models of you know where there's the infrastructure of the church, you know, physical buildings and the layout of a of a different di- of a particular diocese. We've got models of pastoral care in parishes that really go back beyond fifty years, so a mm-hmm. different time, a different era, and um, we and we we're very, we find it very very difficult to to move to a different way of doing things, and so that's the kind of change that needs to happen. But how do you motivate that? Mm. You can't lecture people, you can't guilt people. Well, you you can, but it doesn't work. <laughs> We've tried them. I tried. I tried all those things, and you know, I tried you know to do it by preaching great homilies and this and that. But it's it's a deeper issue than that, and I think the starting point is. People have got to be compelled by by uh, by a vi- by picture of the future. That's one of the that's the, the role of vision. You see, uh, Bill Hybels, the the pastor of of, of Willow Creek, defines uh, vision as a picture of the f- future that produces passion in you. Picture of the future that produces passion in you. So, people can only be inspired to change. I think of Martin Luther King. What, what did he say? He said he said I have a dream. He didn't say I have a plan. Uh, I have a strategy. Uh, I have even, I have an idea. He said, mm-hmm. I have a dream. I have a dream. And when you paint a picture of the future that people say, wow, that's inspiring. That moves me. That's exciting. I, I'm willing to, to get, I, I, I'm willing to do that. Um, then that's the beginning of really motivating so how, change. How do you do that though? What's the process by which you both conceive of a vision and then communicate it? 
Well, I, I think that's the essential role of leadership. I mean, in the task of leadership in the church, the, the priest can uh, delegate many, many things. Uh, ministry can can be shared in many, many ways. I mean, there are specific ministries that are particular to the priest, you know, the, the task of, of ministering the sacraments and preaching at the liturgy and, and, and such. But the task of leadership, one of this, the core things that can be passed on is is forming and communicating vision. Forming and communicating vision. Because if the leader doesn't do that, then no one's going to do it. And, and that can't be passed on. So if it's up to the leader to do this, then the parish priest, the pastor, the leader of a ministry or organization has to begin with, with an experience by getting on his or her knees before God and, and, and having it out and saying, Lord, help me to uncover and get in touch with that fire that is within me, that, that vision of the future that I believe that you're calling me to. Um, I got a lot of thoughts on this. Uh, <laughs> Ron, I could talk all got... day about it, but that, that's generally where we need to go with it. So, Ron, you've got like what? How many ministries are, are, are under your your purview? Probably about eighty. Eighty ministries under your purview. How in the world do you communicate vision to to that many leaders? Because I mean, each of those ministries have have leaders, right? Mm. And and it's your task uh, to to help guide them to to be as as leaderish as they can be. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. You know, one of the things as I was listening to you talking, Father James, is, you know, where do you start was your question, Dan. And, and I think part of it is that discontent to recognize what part of us is discontent. And I know frustration is something that's highly been highly motivating for me in the past. Mm. My earlier years, that led to a lot of condemning other people, the church, priests, bishops, pastoral council, it took a long time before I realized that was God giving me the gift of discontentment to motivate me and inspire me to actually make a difference. And I think part of a vision is to recognize where am I discontent? Where could things be a lot better? It's the aggravation point. And why, the... yeah, the frustration. I, when I see Catholics frustrated, I get excited. Yes. Because God's giving them a gift and they wouldn't be frustrated if they didn't care. Yeah. And so how do we turn that frustration into allowing the love of God to care for people? It reminds people? me of, uh, so, so some of my work in the past has been around public engagement, right? So sure. hosting town meetings, public meetings. And uh, that television show, Parks and Recreation, uh, one of, I think it's in the very first episode. They do a public meeting and everybody's yelling at the front of the room. <laughs> and Amy Poehler comes out and the, and the camera's asking her, so so what was that all about? What did you hear? And Amy says, what I hear are citizens caring very loudly. <laughs> so, that agitation, that frustration that people are feeling is caring. Like they, they're not Absolutely. disengaged. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I mean, that that's a good sign. I mean, one of the great tragedies in our church is that there's so often people who just don't seem to care all that much. Mm. So, so when people get impassioned and disagree, this is actually a good thing. Mm. I think the discontent thing is absolutely key. Uh, I, when, I, when I speak to priests, sometimes I say, you know, it's like a mosquito bite. You know, it, it's there. And our temptation is, okay, I'm not going to scratch it. Because when I scratch it, of course, there's relief, but then count to five and it's, and it's itchier than ever. You know, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think with the discontent, once we've identified it, we've got to scratch it. 
and continue to scratch it so that it really drives us crazy to the point that we're willing to do something about it. There's two temptations when it comes to discontent. One is to medicate it. And I don't mean that literally. I mean, uh, we can we can bury it. We can try to ignore it. We can uh, create a theology around it that allows us to park it over in the corner of our lives and not disturb us too, too much. Because if, if we don't do that, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to actually get up and do something. And that can come at a great cost. The other temptation of discontent is, is to not be godly discontent and allow it to consume us in a destructive way. Right. So I become bitter. Yep. I become toxic, negative, critical. And I know in my own life, I mean, I, I'm generally a person who feels these things strongly. And <laughs> at times in my life, I've had to repent yes. because I've allowed my frustration with the way things are rooted in a conviction that it can be better to to not be balanced, to not be healthy and, and to actually be destructive. And and uh, I know that when I experience that, when I start becoming negative and critical in my heart, I have to bring it to the Lord. I've got to really repent and say, Lord, you know, let your zeal be in me in a way that, that gives life. Mm, yeah, I know what you mean. I've been guilty of the same thing uh, for sure. Because, you know, and one of the things in leadership that I think is really important too, Dan, is knowing the difference between chronic complainers and people that are frustrated with a desire to make something better happen right? because the chronic complainers or the squeaky wheels can often get the grease. And one of the things that I'm trying to do here is to help create a culture of health. And by doing that, we talk about what things would you want to see in a healthy team. And then we also make a list of what things are toxic in a team. And then we try to agree to hold each other accountable to health versus toxicity because we all have bad days. Mm. We're all going to behave toxically from time to time. But when a bad day turns into a bad week, that's a flag. Yes. And a bad week can never turn into a bad month when you're in leadership because then your toxic behavior negatively impacts the people you're influencing. And that can happen in the church. And unfortunately, a lot of times it does. And not just the church, in any organization. We all know what it's like to be around situations that are chronically toxic. Yeah. It's the cause for disengagement. And sometimes in the church, we allow people to behave like that because they're reliable, because they do tasks really well and consistently. Mm -hmm. And if we lost them, who would we replace them with? So we tolerate their toxic behaviors. And you know what? We have to let some ministries fall to make them healthy, to root out toxicity. I really believe that. And I think that's one of the things that I try really hard to do here. And we're just starting to yeah. implement that. I think that um, sometimes in the church we often over-spiritualize things or we, we rush to a spiritual solution right away. But yet, it, it's I think it's a question of what's our anthropology, what's our understanding of, of human nature and human beings and how God relates to us. And this is something that's very much present in the book with a lot of things I talk about. And it's very much rooted in our Catholic tradition because St. Thomas Aquinas says that grace builds on nature. Amen. This is very, very important. Grace does not replace nature. It, it perfects nature. And it's not just a question of, of nature and grace together. It's grace actually builds on nature. So you can't eliminate the human stuff. If the, if the human foundation is, is, well, it's always cracked. I mean, we're all, we're all, a, we're all quite cracked, aren't we? But if it's really dysfunctional, God can still use us because God uses what is weak and broken, but God is able to to work. If God's grace builds on that human nature, so we can't dismiss it just because we pray a lot. And so looking at the health of a human organization, 
are you know learning things from the business world and applying them to the church. These are all good things, and I think sometimes we're quick to dismiss them because, well, that's not spiritual. That's not spiritual. But I think we do that at great cost to ourselves. And so that idea of of health it begins with the leader, with the the parish priest, the pastor, and goes all the way down to ministries because if the whole body is healthy, then it will grow and it will bear fruit. So the importance of that discontent to be healthy. Right, and its connection to, to passion really is where we started. Uh, so in terms of your, your life experience, Father James, and how you got from where you were 10, 15 years ago to where you are today, what role did this passion or, or discontent play in your own formation? It's been absolutely key. My own experience was that I, I grew up in a very strong Catholic family. I grew up in Scotland. We moved to Canada. We were a church-going family. Um, we didn't really talk about faith outside of, you know, say your prayers before you before you go to bed. But you know, my whole life, I've missed Sunday Mass twice. I know I can remember exact moments. So we were a very strict, <laughs> uh, strong Catholic family. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. But even though I had an experience, a powerful experience of God the day I had my first communion, I still remember it. It was experience of the Holy Spirit and all that. But for much of the years that followed, I really had no personal experience of Jesus. And that changed for me when I was 17 years old, where I had an encounter with Jesus, uh, experience of the Holy Spirit that really changed my life. And so here was a conundrum. Here I was, I had been going to church all these years, believing, and I would have said that I was that I believed, but I didn't know this was possible. I didn't know this kind of experience, this kind of relationship with Jesus was possible. So from then on in, long before I, I thought about being a priest, there was this sense of, I want other Catholics to discover what I've discovered. Because mm-hmm. many seem to be kind of like, but <laughs> kind of like zombies, routine, right? like, yeah, like yeah. zombies, you know, the living dead, like just mm-hmm. motivated by, by duty. As a former zombie, obli- I can understand where you're at. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. It's like the, I, like the walking zombie. The walking yeah. dead, you know, it's, 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 it, we're, we're going through the motions. We're doing it out of, out of duty, guilt whatever, ob- obligation. Mm-hmm. And I wanted people to discover this. And then, of course, when I became a priest, it was the same thing. I, It's like I, you look out sometimes on a on a Sunday Mass and you think, oh my goodness, like sometimes the body language, it's, it's sometimes it can be quite challenging. I, I remember years ago, a kid saying to me, I don't like going to Mass because it's so boring. And I looked at him and said, you know something? When I sit and I have to look out at you, you're boring. You are boring. Don't talk about Mass being boring. Have you ever looked at yourself? You know, so... <laughs> There's a sense of a desire to awaken that. And so that was the original dissatisfaction. And so from the very first time I was in a parish, it was like, how do we how do we stir this up? How do we help people to come along? But there's a challenge there because if you literally don't know what you don't have, you it it's exactly. it's almost like people have been immunized yeah. against receiving the fullness of the gospel message and what it means to live life in Christ. So that's been a, a core motivating thing. And also, as I said before, that I found that kind of community in, in life in the movements. And my desire was, how can we get a model to bring this into parish life? Because often parish life just seems to be kind of just mediocre. Everything is mediocre and minimal and don't rock the boat and don't upset people and keep it all the same. And Father, can you just make it real quick so we can get out of here and get it over and done with? Now, Ron, you, you kind of, uh, you're sort of passion incarnate for me. I mean, whenever I'm with you, the, the energy level usually goes like six floors above the, you know, ground. And, uh, you know, and you've got a fascinating story in terms of how you got looped in here. So I guess I'm curious, how did passion and, and drive sort of fit into to where you are now? That's a, I do get accused of being uh, highly enthusiastic. There's no question about that. So passion is something that naturally, I think, is part of the DNA that God's given me. And 
how did that come into play with faith? You know, I'm very, I love sports and I was always passionate about sports and playing with my friends and things like that. But from a very early age, I loved Christ. My mom was great at bringing me to a, a, a love of Jesus. I found the church very hard. I would have been one of those guys that Father James was calling boring uh, <laughs> and who didn't like Mass and found it really yeah. boring. It was a real struggle for me because I was so active. Yet I, too, came to a, a life-changing faith at the same age as Father James. It took a lot of years for me to actually live it out because mm-hmm. then you had high school and university years ahead of you, uh, and I didn't always make the best decisions. But deep in my heart, I knew I wanted to live for Christ. And so as I began to read Scripture in my early 20s, it changed everything. I began to see Christ telling us to share the good news. Mm. And that created a lot of frustration in me because I didn't know how. I wasn't good at it. I didn't have any models in the Catholic Church of people doing it and having impact and effectiveness. So that started my long time of blaming everybody <laughs> before I recognized. That's your discontent? That was my discontentment. <laughs> and I remember a lady saying to me one time, who was a mentor of mine, she had a master's in theology. She was on pastoral council. She was a business lady. I used to go sit with her uh, in her business uh, for an hour or two at a time and talk to her. A lot of it, unfortunately, was me complaining. And one day she finally heard enough of me and she said, stop. She said, did you ever think God might be talking to you? Mm. And to be honest with you, Dan, no, I didn't. Who was I that God would talk to me and use me in any way to do anything significant for the church? But when I heard that that day, I kind of thought of the apostles. That was a very unlikely crew. And I realized, oh my gosh, maybe God is talking to me. And if he is, what am I going to do about it? That changed everything. I think it's a great story because... If you're feeling discontent, if you if you're if you're awake at night, convinced that things can be better, uh, do you think God might be talking to you? <laughs> and I think that's the truth of it: is that God speaks to us in our discontent, if it's a godly discontent. And then it's a case of of flipping the discontent over and say, okay, the very thing that drives you crazy, flip it, and imagine ten years from now, your context where everything that you desire. Everything that keeps you awake, it actually comes together. What does it look like? Like paint the picture. Mm-hmm. Even if you sit down and begin to write, like if you're if you're a parish priest, what does my church look like in ten years? And describe what's going to be happening. What people are going to see when you walk in. Like be descriptive. Like paint the picture, and that's a picture of the future that is going to produce passion in you. And that's of course that's just the beginning of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But I want to I want to get to something that is a key thing around vision, and I've discovered this. In, in, in my work with priests, and it it's almost precedes vision, and, and it has to do with your, how you experience discontent. Uh, people are only going to be able to have a vision of the future that produces passion into them if deep down they believe that it's actually possible. Mm, is, is such yeah. a future actually possible, or is it just simply a pipe dream? And sometimes there's such great discouragement in the church. You know, Parish priests especially are weighed down by the crazy demands of ministry because we sacrifice over and over again the, the important to the urgent, and every parish priest knows this experience. I, I know these are the most important things I need to do this week, and I don't get at them because people are breaking down the door and the emails and phone calls and here's another funeral and, and, and everything just gets blown apart and you don't get to it. And many priests feel crushed by this. And because they can never get to what they know is important, they, they lose hope and begin to despair that it, 
can even be different. You know, it's not just priests. I mean, I that's everybody's say. like, come on now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it's so, you know, prayer time is so easy to push aside because, you know, my email inbox is, is I, was, I was on the drive over here this morning. I was telling Paul, our technical producer, I was saying, I have so many unread emails right now. It is just, I'm not, the reality is I'm never going to get back to all of them. It's just never going to happen. And, and, you know, but there's still important things in life that I have to set aside. And, and, and prayer being one of those things that's so easy to push aside because the phone won't stop buzzing. It just keeps vibrating in the pocket. But, you know, it, the vision for a person's life is frankly as important in terms yes. of uh, getting achieving that sort of balance between what's important versus urgent right. as, it, as it is in a parish. Hey, I think there's, there's two things that are important to, to shaping vision, and that is hope, theological hope, which is not optimism. It's not positive thinking. It's not spin. It's not denial. Uh, hope is is rooted in our in our the fact that when we take our eyes off ourselves and put our eyes on the living God, the, the the God who raised Jesus from the dead, who brought Jesus through death to life, who brings forth water in the desert. I mean, th- this is a fundamental starting point. That no matter what, no matter how difficult things may be, that we serve a God of life who who asks us constantly in the church. Ezekiel thirty seven, Son of Man, can these bones live? Mm-hmm. This valley of dry bones. Do you believe? that I can put breath and life into these bones. Do you believe it? And therefore, watch what I can do. Now, that's a theological conviction, but, but how do we move that theological conviction into, in, into something that's heartfelt and real and impacts our life? And I really believe that, that in order to have a vision like that, you've, you've got to deep down know it's possible. And I think we're all like Thomas. You know, Lord, unless I can... Put my finger in your wounds and my hand in your side, I will not believe it. I'm sorry, that I'm, I'm weak in my faith. And so I found for me that actually seeing, getting outside of my little box and seeing a church that actually is healthy and growing and doing the very things that, I, that I desire has been absolutely key in, in keeping my passion and helping me shape a vision of the future because why do I yearn for it? Why do I labor for it? Why do I desire it? Because... I know it's possible, not just because of a theological conviction, but because I've seen it. Mm. I've seen it, and indeed I know it is possible. It is. That's all. That was always set my heart to right in my stomach. I knew it was possible. We used to sing that song. They will know we are Christians by our love. We will walk with each other. We'll walk side by side. I just thought we don't do it, but we sing about it. It must be possible. But I have to tell you, and I have to share from a layperson's perspective. You know, I'm a businessman at heart. born and raised in the sales world and pharmaceutical sales and, and, and the like. Uh, I know what the competitive business environment looks like. I know what it means to go out there and compete and to fail and to set goals. And I'll tell you, as, a, as somebody who is a strong business uh, background and who's led a lot of things, you know, with soccer and hockey and different organizations and associations, to not be used in a, in a Catholic church, to just sit there in the pew and as a leader and not be used you experience spiritual atrophy. And I'll tell you, I've been in a lot of churches where they just, that whole pray, pay, and obey, or if you want to use your gifts, maybe you can come and read. And it's like, that's not engaging my gifts. I need to take everything I have and apply it to something in the Catholic Church that's going to be awesome. And if priests don't engage me, I spiritually die and disengage. And I believe the Catholic Churches all over the world are full of people just like me dying for something to sink their teeth in, not just to do liturgical ministries. And until priests and leadership 
get their head around that, then you guys are all going to be on your own, yeah, it's, it's, and I'm dying in the pews. Back to the compelling vision, doesn't it? Like I don't just want to fold bulletins. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but, but, there's, but, but there's greatness. There's an invitation to greatness. And people say, "Well, you're going to be careful." That sounds very arrogant. But oh. you know, I I think of the words of Our Lady in the Magnificat: "He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name." It's it's not about us. It's not because of us. It's because God desires to work mightily in in every single parish, whether you're in a big uh, suburban parish or a little country parish. God wants to do amazing things in and through you, in and through the people in your parish, if if people are engaged. I think of the words of St. Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 4, who, when speaking about the charisms, you know, and, and apostle and prophet and pastor yes. and teacher, he says they're given to, quote, equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the church. Amen. That the role of pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the church. And oftentimes, uh, in many of our parishes, we're not equipping the saints. In fact, the only people doing the work of ministry are, is the pastor. But it's not... There are key roles that the pastor has to undertake, especially in our Catholic tradition. But still, the, the, the job is to equip the saints, to call them forth and say, and say, what are your gifts and how can you serve the building up of the church and building up of the kingdom and how can I help equip you? Well, and Father James, on that note, a lot of times, and I love your perspective on this, is we say, well, the sacraments do that, as if the sacraments do all of it and we don't have to do anything else. Like there's this no sense of grace, it builds on nature. So... We say the sacraments are enough, but yet we don't see the fruit in a lot of churches. And so I wonder, you know, Jesus would say, you can tell a tree by its fruit. Yes. And so I expect greatness. And that's one of the things working with you that I've always admired. You expect greatness from your staff, from your ministries, from the people you put in charge. You're not intimidated by excellence of others. And that is unique, and I, I know I'm not sure you appreciate it as much in yourself as I do in you, because I've been in other situations where when things start going well, there seems to be this almost jealousy or this tension that happens, and things get shut down. And you have a way of expecting greatness from everybody. You just have this, I don't know, this wonderful faith in Christ that he can do anything. Where did you get that? A low tolerance <laughs> for zombies as well. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. He doesn't expect it. Well, it's beautiful. Nothing, do you know what, one of the things I love the most at our parish is when I realize things are happening and I have no clue about it. It's just I love it. I absolutely love it uh, because that's the church being 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 the church. If I've, I said the other day and I, and I, I tweeted it, I said if a, if a parish if the parish priest knows absolutely everything that's going on in his parish, that's 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 not a good sign. <laughs> it is not a good sign because, because we have when we have uh, so much scope to influence and impact people, and you might be run off your feet and being really busy running around doing everything. But if if it's all about you and and all of the ministry centered around the person, the priest, the overall impact is going to be absolutely minimal. No one's getting equipped. Uh, it's like uh, a hockey coach who actually doesn't do any coaching and actually puts on the skates and gets out on the ice and is out there for every single shift, running from being the goalie to the, the, the <laughs> midfield to the defense. I'm more of a soccer guy, so I, I don't quite understand hockey. But, <laughs> hockey players. There. But, you know, but, the, but there's an analogy. Like, what is the role yeah, of that, the... That was not the analogy, but yeah, there is one. So if you, th if you think, for instance, of, of, of soccer or something like the... Yes. Or... or Motor car racing, shall we say? Like, I'm kind of like the, uh, the I'm kind of like the pit captain. You know, I, I help change the, the the tires and the air pressure and top up the gas and and send the cars back out on the track. Uh, that's that's the role of the pastor. Whereas 
the traditional model was that the, the fancy cars going around the track being applauded, that's the priest. Right. And right, the lay yeah. people are in the stands saying, oh, Father, what a great job. Oh, Father, <laughs> Father, you're so lovely, Father. You're so great, Father. What a wonderful homily, Father. I once had a lady say that to me. I didn't even give the homily. <laughs> Uh, and and it's it's this is clerical model of, of ministry, and and yet it that image of no the the cars are actually the baptized and the people in the stands watching. Well, that's the world that we're called to witness Amen. to. What, where is the pastor? Where is the priest? In the pit, changing the tires, serving people, equipping them for the work of ministry, caring for them, and sending them out. That's the core meaning of the mass. The word mass is to be sent. That's what we do whenever we come to the Eucharist. I love as, that as well. analogy. Me too, but I'm wondering where the midfielder fits into this one. <laughs> Midfield's a very important decision because the midfield at times has to be in defense, has to be on the offensive. All right, no cover yeah, for yourself. Yeah, very, very, very good. I, I want to go back to the, the question of vision because I think the starting point of vision, again, you know, starting from, you know, if you have a hard time finding what your vision is, start with your discontent, uh, bring it to prayer, write it down, and, and if you can do all that and do it in a proper way and avoid the negativity and all of this, yes. you've, got your, you've got a compelling uh, picture of the future. Now, that's uh, from the leader. Now, that has to be then shaped because mm-hmm. it's not then the job of the leader to come in and impose, here is, everyone listen, here is my vision. That vision has to be shared with, with some key people within a parish uh, and perhaps reshaped slightly. But let's be honest in saying that, that the vision... Of, of a parish that, that is led by someone whose who's leadership gifts is going to be strongly influenced by that person yeah. and by that person's vision. It's no uh, coincidence that if a priest is in a parish long enough, the parish will take on a corporate personality that is similar to the personality of the priest. It's just the way that it is if the person is a true leader. What's the cool thing about leadership is someone said a good leader is not someone with lots of followers. A good leader is someone who raises up other leaders. And so that's it's so important to for a leader to see the capacity in someone else and to help them to recognize the discontent and mm. to scratch the itch and to turn that itch and discontent into a vision and then to be able to help them to communicate that vision to the people they, they serve with. And, and then, you know, then you've got the task, you know, indeed, we haven't really talked much about how to communicate vision and maybe that can be a topic for another time, you know, how it is done by one-on-one meetings, by, by, by preaching to your whole parish and preaching visioning homilies. It's something that we do here at St. Benedict every three weeks. I will very intentionally preach what I call a visioning homily. And that always has to do with where are we going? Why are we doing what we're doing? And why are we making this particular change? Very Being very careful not to somehow blame the people in the past for not doing it right because, no. uh, because things have changed entirely. And I don't think it's worthwhile blaming anyone because who is to blame, really? I mean, the people in the past, we wouldn't be as well, relatively as well off as we are right now if they hadn't been doing what, what they Absolutely. did. So it's, there's no fingers to be pointed. It's, the world has changed around Context us. Changes, Context yeah. has entirely changed, and we need, to, we need to go forward. So that need for, for visioning homily all the time, and even amongst the staff, mm-hmm. like once a month we have an all-staff meeting. We, the, the other weeks we, we break our team into, into three different teams, but in that once-a-month meeting, it's basically friendship-based and, and vision-based. When we do have a little presentation, it's on some aspect of the vision. And even, I love what we do, we take time to go around the, the team and we, and we say, well, we, have, we ask people to share about their high and low in the last month, but the next thing we do is we remind people about our vision statement, and when we ask people to tell a story, tell a story that puts a name and a face that shows that we're, we're getting closer to, to achieving our vision. Because, of course, when you have a vision statement you're not saying this is who we are 
we're saying this is what we what we dream about being. Want to be, yeah. This is what we dream about being, and it's such a great exercise because it's it's when you put names and faces. You know, when you hear a story about someone who has who has taken on a new ministry and it, and it's a great fit for their for their gifts and they're just delighted to be used by God. When you hear a story of someone coming to a deeper experience of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the sacraments, uh, someone getting having a profound experience of community. This was, gets me excited, and that's an important thing in terms of keeping vision alive. Yeah, we have to celebrate the wins. You got to celebrate the wins, celebrate and that's wins. so important. You got to because that that just throws fuel on the fire. It keeps it going, and it yeah. it keeps us really in touch with the fact that yeah, this is possible. It's not pie in the sky, because if you have a compelling vision and you're passionate about it, there will unfortunately be people who will be around you saying, "Ah, oh, come on, like, what do you f- get, be realistic, be real? <laughs> this is never going to happen. You're getting ahead of yourself." Yeah, from the flame. People will will tear you yeah. down. Yeah. So my, my experience with St. Benedict is totally different because it's not my parish. Your parish is not my parish. Uh, so I experience your vision through the experience of visiting. And, I, and I've been lucky enough that, you know, you're not, it's not so far away from me that it, I'm not able to visit on occasion. And it's one of my, my family's more favorite places to go because our experience here models something that is just so amazing. I mean, this uh, for those listening, this church is positively bursting at the seams. And, you know, to find a, a seat on the pew can be challenging sometimes on a given Sunday. And it's it's an amazing thing to experience. And it's it's very different than, than many of the uh, the parishes I've been a member of over the past years. And uh, so I, I, my experience is one of, of utter joy at seeing how this place has come together and the strength of spirit it seems to exhibit when you come in and the overwhelming friendliness. I mean, like I, I come in and I don't know many people that are, are sitting up there in, in the pews. And yet I, I leave knowing at least one additional person's name because I'm forced <laughs> to, to do so by you, Father. Uh, it's one of the things they do here is that you force us to turn around and, and have a prayer partner uh, yeah. at, at, during Mass. And so you, you learn someone's name. And uh, but it, it, it is it is absolutely a remarkable experience. And so my experience of your vision is one of tangible, right? Like I see where this place has gone. Not so much where you you picture it going, but I, I can see where it is already. True enough. There's a lot to celebrate, isn't there? Already, and sometimes what can happen is we're so focused on the future that we yeah. don't appreciate the transformation that's already taken place. And I think that's part of the vision too: is not only in staff celebrating wins, but every now and again from the pulpit. Just putting wind in people's sails, saying, look what you've done. I'm so proud of you. You guys are amazing. And really calling out the awesome things. Because if all we're doing is painting a picture for the future, the future, the future, that can be discouraging as well. And I think you've done a great job, Father James, of also clapping your hands in a, in a sense and really giving people a sense of that pride. Because if we feel like, you know, as the father of the parish, if we feel like we've never really pleased our father yet because Mm. he's painting this picture of when we make the NHL someday, then maybe playing in peewee and scoring my second goal of the year might not be as big a win, but somehow we need to do both, don't we? I remember my first, very first weekend here, my first homily, I think it was, but leading up to that in the days before people were, a number of people had said to me repeatedly, oh, you've got a big job ahead of you, a big job, you've got a big job. And I got up my first homily and I said, you know, does anyone here think that? And and a lot of heads nodded. I said, well, if you think that, then uh, I, I'm afraid I have to I have to resign. Because if you think that that I have a big job coming here, that I it's impossible. I, I quit. I said unless you're convinced that we have a big job, <laughs> uh, this is not going to go anywhere. And 
oftentimes I'll say, you know, people will come in and say, oh, you've done a good job. And, and it's that whole thing. It's like, no, no, it's not me. It's not my associate pastor. It's not Father Michael. It's not even the parish staff. We, we, the people, the, the entire parish so have done an amazing job because, again, uh, as I say, a, a leader without followers is just someone going for a walk, you know, and it's, <laughs> and it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing this together. We're doing this together. And that's one of the one of the key challenges in in leadership is again if you don't get the if you don't get the vision thing right, you're just going to be going for a walk because you're going to be you're going to be moving ahead and proposing changes and taking making changes and you're going to turn around and guess what? No one's going to be behind you so, because okay, you haven't let, compelled them. You haven't won yeah. them over. The, the, no one has a conviction about where they're going. Let, let's get a little bit of hands-on advice here. Yeah. So let, let's go start with someone who's in the pews. Someone who's in the pews who maybe like you, Ron, has, has some qualities that aren't being tapped, that has you know a richness or so, a, a desire to contribute. What's your advice? I mean, they're listening to you right now. What 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 do we tell them? What what should we give them in terms of uh, so the person guidance? in the pew who's listening? The person in who's, the pew who was like me. Oh yeah. See, my heart goes out to them, Father James, because not a lot of priests are trained they're not trained my guess is you guys aren't no. trained in how to lead people how to inspire people and how to bring about these this sea of of capacity towards something theologically unbelievable training and so not everybody has the capacity to inspire and equip others which is tricky and so if you're like one of those people like me in the pews and you don't have a leader it is excruciatingly painful, and maybe you're trying, and you're, and and to be honest with you, I've spent most of my Catholic life in that place, being underutilized, misunderstood, and not having a clue how to support my pastor, who really isn't overly gifted in leadership. And to be honest with you, Dan, my heart aches for those people. I say, pray and don't give up hope. I don't know the answer for that. I really don't. There is not a clear-cut answer for that. And I know that it's caused a lot of disengagement. I, I wish I had something what to about say. You, Father, what would you say well, to them? I think, like anything, if, if the, the, the vision of, of the leader is, it begins with a sense of discontent, then I think when you, what's called uh, communicative vision or cast a vision, vision cast, it sounds very fancy, that also you ought to begin with, with discontent. And so I'll often say to people, you know, who here has met members of the family who don't go to church? Almost everyone. Are you, are you content with that? Are you content with the fact that 95% of the young people who are confirmed walk away from the church? Are you okay with that? Like, really, are you okay with that? Or are you just burying it and denying it? Like, like, does that bother you? And you see heads beginning to nod. Yeah, no, people are actually not okay with this. Uh, are you okay that right now the level of pastoral care in our church in terms of whether Father James is going to come visit you really depends on some gargantuan tragedy befalling your family before I'm going to show up at your door. Because if I was to visit two families uh, a week, it would take me about 10 years to come back again. <laughs> some people might be thinking, well, yeah, that, that would be good enough. Uh, but um, <laughs> but is that the le- are we content with that level of caring? In our, is that Christian community? Are you content with that? And you see people start to say, yeah, you're right. You know, that's not very good. Well, then you've got, so you've got to raise the discontent and then scratch that itch. So that people are like, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, this is actually not so good at all. But Father James, how do you do that? Or what's your, because I think the question for Dan is, no, no, not the priest, because you're talking about the priest, but as a lay person who's in a church who's full of capacity to lead and influence and has a love for Christ and the church, but is in a situation where their leadership skills are not 
being tapped at all. Okay. For yeah. that guy, what would you say well, to him to, or you've her? Well, you've got to connect those leadership skills with with the with the compelling vision. So I think too, you've got to you've got to get that person to the point that they're jumping up and down in the pew, passionate about the need to change, and then you say, okay, all right. This is the discontent. No, here, here's what we want to do. And here's something, here's a, a bit of a plan that we think is going to work. We don't have all the details worked out, but who's willing to get on board with this? We're gonna, remember what we did when we launched Alpha in the parish here? And Alpha is a, a, a 10-week program, Introduction to the Basics of, of Christian Faith through inviting people in, often non-church goers or people even from, from the church and experiencing community. There's a meal, there's a short talk in the Christian faith and and, and small groups. And I've used this over the years in my various parishes to great success. And I remember when I first came to this parish, I, I did this. I mean, I talked to people. I said, are, are you content with this? I mean, because we've experienced a lot of decline. Are, are, are you okay with this? And people are not okay with it. And I said, well, here's a tool that has worked for me in the past. And I, and I painted uh, the, the picture and invited people to step forward to sign up. And I said, we will, we will match your involvement in this with, with the gifts that you bring. We were hoping for 30, 40 people to sign up. We had 160 people came forward. And that was to people. lead. That wasn't to take the course. That, wasn't that was to, to that, lead. That was to lead it. 160 <laughs> people. Wow. And that was amazing. And that's what showed me, you know, that, that in this particular parish, and I think in most parishes, if you scratch that dissatisfaction, people are ready to do something. But people have got to believe that it is possible to do it differently, like a, a different way of, of doing it, uh, living the Christian life more to the full within a parish is actually indeed possible, mm-hmm. and you've got to paint that as well. And I think what I'd say, because again, it's you calling us out, like, so you have this capacity to, to do that, and you're really good at it. But if you're in a church, if you're a, a layperson, and you're in a church, and you don't have a pastor who has a compelling vision, who... who Really, we do Sunday, and that's what your church does, and it's and, and you're discontent with that, and you know there's more. And what I would say to you is keep praying. If you believe there's more, I want you to know you're right. I want you to know there's so much more. The Catholic Church can be so rich, vibrant, exciting, and engaging. It's unbelievable. I believe that. If you believe that, then please don't lose hope. And be faithful in the little things. Your influence will increase in God's time. And so be faithful to your prayer life. Be faithful to scripture reading. Find other people like yourself who you can gather and start to pray with and grow with in faith. And pray for your pastor and find little ways to encourage your pastor if they're not a leader so that God can answer that prayer. I don't know how it's going to is happen. It, but do you know not, what I mean, Dan? Yeah, like, totally. that... But is it naive to think that that you know a leader who's who's sitting in the pew, someone who's you know a leader in their real life and in the core of being, yeah. is it naive to think that they could just start pitching some ideas to to the leadership? Like, could they suggest, hey, why don't we run Alpha at this church? I'm willing to put my time in, or or dogmatic theology, for instance. Like, is is it naive to think that that's an option? No, I think it is. I think it ought to be an option. It is an option. Uh, again, depending on the particular personality of the pastor. And maybe a different openness to that, which is in one, in one sense is quite tragic. As a parish priest, my experience is this, that when people want to come and speak to me, 99.99% of them want me to do something for them. Right. And it just, it becomes what you expect. So if someone wants to come and speak to Father, wants an appointment, you know, we sit down, we talk about the weather, different things, and then you just wait, and you wait to see what is it that this person is going to ask me to do for them? What agenda do they have? I remember once, and I think this has happened like maybe once or twice in 17 years as a priest, someone has come to see me 
and sat down and said, Father, how can I help you? Wow. I was like, excuse me? Did, did I hear, mm. excuse me? Did you say what I thought you said? Yeah, how can I help you? Here's my background. Here's my passion. This is who I am. This is what I desire for the church. How can I be of service to you? Mm, great advice. And I was blown away by that. And I think that that's a great way to start. Like, because often our, our pastors are, 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 are pressed to, to the extreme. They're, they're overwhelmed uh, with things. And to have someone who comes without an agenda, and the only agenda is, how can I support you in your ministry? And this is who I, don't deny who you are. Don't sell yourself short. Uh, don't say, well, I could be a lector. <laughs> Whereas this is a person who's capable of a lot of different things. And we've got to be careful how we define capacity as well, because capacity is capacity for very, very different things. Mm-hmm. And some of the people who are most vital to an organization, I think of some of the people in my parish whose, whose primary ministry is to pray for the parish. They've got huge capacity for this, huge capacity to be intercessors, to be, in a sense, prayer warriors. And I like to say to them, uh, those who gather for Eucharistic adoration on Wednesdays and that, I said, you're, you're like people working in the engine room. You're shoveling coal into the engine. And so the, the capacity comes in very different shapes and sizes. But I think we're called to help people identify what they do best, what they do well, and what they love doing, and help them to be connected in to ministry. Wonderful. Well, guys, I so much appreciate the opportunity to, to come together and have this kind of a conversation. Uh, I, I look forward to hopefully having many more of these kinds of talks and exploring some other themes under the divine renovation uh, sort of grounding, under the grounding. That doesn't really make much sense as a metaphor, does it? Oh, well, it's in the midfield. midfield. <laughs> uh, are there any closing thoughts, Father? And, and where should we follow you on Twitter, for instance? I know you're a big Twitter guy. Uh, at FJ Mallon. Um, F.J. Mallon on Twitter, or my website, fatherjamesmallon.com. And Ron, uh, best way to, to stay in touch with you or to, to follow you? Yeah, Twitter is uh, RMHSBP. Those are my initials in St. Benedict Parish, so you can follow me on R-M-H-S-B-P. Twitter. RMHSBP. Yeah. It just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Thank you so much to everybody who's listening in, and we hope, to he- hope you will join us again for future conversations. God bless. All the best.